The Enviro Show on SAFM. That's what it is. It's the Enviro Show, the dedicated green show right here on SAFM. And I'm Nancy Richardson. Team today, we've got Kim Winter, we've got Grant and Quinica, and we got you. So don't wait. But don't wait if you want to give us a call and join in the uh, green conversations. You can do it. 0892 10 2010 is the number. Just a quick reminder. 0892 Well, as you know, if you're a regular, you'll probably know that we usually close the show with a green goodie. Um, but tonight, just uh, on account of that's how things are, and it also in the light of the World Design Capital Project announcements, we're going to be featuring as our green goodie, Cape Town. I can't get greener than that. We're going to be opening with that. We'll be talking to uh, CEO of the Cape Town Partnership. She's Bulelwa Makalima uh, Nguana, and she is going to be telling us a little bit about an exhibition just uh, soon to be released, in fact, if not already released, called People Make Places. It's all about urban planning, and I think urban planning definitely impacts on the environment in many different levels. So that's how we're starting. After that, it's a little bit of fish. World Fisheries Day coming up on November the 21st. So we're going to be talking to two people about fish or marine resources, can I say, talking to the extremely conscious, conscientious, in fact, Greg Stubbs, who's the founder of the Three Stream Fish Farm in Franchuk, where incidentally they can track every last stage of a fish from ocean to plate, as well as produce them. Plus, uh, the very contested issue of CRIF or rock lobster quotas, as annual quotas are being cut. Recreational CRIF fishermen are absolutely outraged. Well, we're going to be talking to the chair of the Recreational Fishing Services to shed a bit of light on that debate. Then on a, a slightly uh, more lighter note, we'll be talking to Dr. Tembakazi Mali. She's an advocate of women in energy to get something of her perspective on the progress of alternative energy here in South Africa compared with the rest of the world. How well are we doing? Where do we need to be concentrating our energy, as it were? And last, uh, certainly not least, the very highly contested, once again, issue of fracking back in the spotlight after the elders, the Silverheads, uh, <coughs> excuse me, who were in Cape Town just recently. And uh, during their debates and meetings, I think one of the things that they highlight as being the most, uh, the biggest threat to mankind is the issue of climate change, which, uh, of course, they, they're not wrong. And uh, they also discuss the issue of shale gas, a very, very controversial issue, something that we will be just taking one side of the argument here. We'll be talking to Jonathan Deal, who's the leader of the Treasure the Act. Treasure the Karoo Action Group. And as you might know, there was a big protest of more than a 1,000 people held recently in Cape Town anti-fracking marches. So that's something we're going to be looking at. And uh, any at any stage, if you want to sh- join in and tell us what your feelings are about any of these issues, you're most welcome. It's, uh, it's uh, 0892 10 2010. It's 0892 10 2010. Of course, you can always send us an email. We're at enviro at safm.co.za and we do have a Facebook page I think Kim has put up a lot of the information that we got on on tonight and if you'd like to have a look at that send us a message via Facebook you can do that too it's the Enviro Show on SAFM so stick around that's what it is The Enviro Show one thing I forgot to remind you is, uh, once again, the Enviro Show is podcast. So if you anything that you've heard that you'd like to hear all over again, you want to get your facts right, or just uh, get your 
information where it where you would like it to be. And we are on www.safm.co.za and scroll on down to podcasts and you'll find us there, The Enviro Show on SAFM. Another little bit of information I'd just like to share with you too. In February this year, it came to light that ESCOM had contracted a security company to gather intelligence on environmental NGOs, Groundwork, Earthlife Africa and Greenpeace Africa. As a result, the three NGOs actually withdrew from ESCOM's uh, NGO forum until the utility had disclosed the extent, process and outcome of an investigation. So all this spying going on. Well, the investigation has now come to a close and ESCOM has made full disclosure of the spying issue to the organisations and intends to make a public apology. That's happening on Monday the 11th at 1.30 and it's happening at the Earthlife Africa offices in Bramfontein if you'd like to get yourself along there. And the reason for mentioning all that is that we hope, very much hope, to be speaking next week on the show to South African-born Greenpeace International Executive Kumi Naidu. So that's uh, something to look forward to, hopefully. Fingers crossed on that one. So let's start off with our green goodie, which we are opening the show with instead of closing. And tonight we're going to be putting in the spot, in the green goodie spotlight, we're going to be putting Cape Town. Because on the line we have the uh, the CEO of Cape Town Partnership. She's Bulelwa Makalima Nguana. And uh, we've got her on the line to tell us a little bit about the exhibition called People Make Places. And it's very much to do with urban planning. And, and seeing as we are now the official World Design Capital 2014, uh, starting off next year, we thought we would find out a little bit more about just how green our urban planning really is. We have her on the line. Hi, Bulelwa. Thank you very much for joining us at this hour of the day. Um, and I know that you've been particularly busy because I think the uh, the People Make Places exhibition, has it just opened? Is it about to open? It's already open. Okay. And thank you for having me. We had a quite an p- impressive lineup this evening. Mm. If I can just talk about the exhibition itself. Yes. I yes. mean, um, it's an interesting way of presenting the work of an, of a, of an institution like the Cape and Partnership. Because usually we have an AGM, but this time around we thought because we are well designed capital, as we've already said, let's try and find an innovative and creative way of presenting the work of the Cape Town Partnership so that our stakeholders and shareholders can interact with it at their own pace and be able to give us feedback. So we've taken the same budget that we spend on an AGM and we've used that budget to be able to create a visual representation of the work of the Cape Town Partnership. It opened on Tuesday. It will remain open until next Tuesday. And it's free and open uh, to the public as well. Good. Because I think everybody needs to know a little bit more about their city, especially when their city has been uh, chosen as a world design capital. But as the Enviro Show, what we want to know is how green is the work of uh, Cape Town Partnership? Because this, the exhibition People Make Places, it people make places, but people make a lot of things. People can uh, cause disasters. They can, you know, the environment is very much impacted by people. So to what extent is, is the work that you do environmentally conscious? It is absolutely environmental conscious because the work that we do is within a space. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. Sorry, the, something went strange with your line. Try it again. Can you hear me? Uh, nope, nope, we, nope. Uh, I think we're going to try and get Bolewa back. Something 
terrible, so a little bit of terrible interference there, but I mean, we're going to get her right back on the programme just now. But uh, incidentally, if you are in Cape Town and you'd like to see that exhibition, it's called People Make Places. It's at number six Spin Street, which is a very busy place in the right in the middle of the city, number six Spin Street, round the corner from Parliament, incidentally. And the exhibition is just open tonight and it's on for a whole week called A Journey Through the Work of Cape Town Partnership. I think we might have uh, Bolo on back on the line. No, not yet, not yet. Going to be getting her back, though. But our interest, yes, I think we have her. Are you there? I'm back. Oh, that's lovely. You sound so much better. Something <laughs> horrible interfered with your line there. So <laughs> you were you were just explaining to us that the work that you do at the partnership is very environmentally conscious. Give us some examples. Okay, well, you know what? The way we interpret resilience in terms of cities is that it's, just, it's not just about environmental issues because those are very fundamentally important, of course. But resilience means staying power. It means the ability for cities to face the challenges that are in the future, prepare for them in a way that will help the cities and their people last. So we need to think in terms of 20 to 30 years from now and down the line about what we want our cities to look like. And so the work of the Cape Town Partnership is within a space which is called the Table Bay District in Cape Town. It extends to Landano. It includes Langa. It includes Maitland. And it includes parts of Worcester and Frost River. That space is a space that has really been very developed in the last decade or so. And so we want to see that it actually is able to have a footprint that is very low in carbon, but it actually has, is able to, be, to place people first in terms of the work that we do. Yes, low in carbon is absolutely uh, the primary objective. I mean, I was walking around Cape Town, the city centre today, and it was it was a beautiful day. Um, well, I mean, it was actually quite grey and cold, but it was it just felt very exciting to be in Cape Town. I must say, it's a, it's a really wonderful place. But there are challenges in terms of our carbon footprint, the city's carbon footprint. What are your biggest? Uh, what do you perceive as the biggest challenges? The biggest challenge is transportation and access. Yes. Um, we need to be able to have a public transportation uh, system that is uh, allowing people to be able to leave their cars at home and use public transport to get to town. One of the is- issues also that we face is the fact that uh, we have a very expensive uh, uh, space that makes it difficult for those people that are, cannot afford expensive residential units. So big challenges is to be able to have affordable units so that people who actually earning distant, a decent income can be able to live closer to places of work rather than traveling two hours every morning to get to work. Um, we also are quite challenged in the way that, I mean, with climate change and all the other issues that we're facing, we are in a space that is mostly on reclaimed land. Yes. And so we have to check carefully and in order to be able to make sure that we don't really uh, cause... Um, massive negative environmental impact in that space. We also have um, historic buildings. They're very difficult and very expensive to, to renovate and, 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 and regenerate. So in order to be able to move to a, to a frame where we have all the buildings in town completely green, we need to be able to have incentives that allow property developers to be able to invest in their spaces in such a way that they can actually be promoting green buildings. Yes, I suppose there's quite a lot of retrofitting that might need to happen. I've mentioned right at the beginning there that the World Design Capital have just announced their uh, their list of all their projects, and I think an, amongst them are a, a number of green organisations, green initiatives, green projects. 
Do you try to work at the partnership? Do you try to work with people at grassroots level who are doing green things? We do. We try. I mean, one of the biggest issues that we are facing in the future is food security. So one of our short-listed project voices and capital is uh, is a culture project that we've been trying to foster and facilitate in the last year or so to look at how you can produce food in an urban environment, encouraging, for example, rooftop gardens in town. In fact, my own organization is invested in, uh, in, in ensuring that our balcony is, in fact, a vegetable balcony, and we are on the 12th floor. So more, I mean, we've seen a tribe. I mean, my whole team gets their salads from the balcony of the organization oh, that we work with, which is fantastic. So we want, you want to be able to show that we don't only talk about it, but we actually do it. And it's been very successful this year. That's really nice to hear. You know, I'm trying to think of how many times people go out for a smoke break on the balcony. So it's quite nice that your team is not going out for a smoke break, but for a salad break. Yes, <laughs> uh, it's, it's been fantastic. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing because when we started this project, it was very, um, I suppose, uh, low cost in terms of installment and being able to say, well, we are now starting a garden and saying to the smokers, if you want to smoke on the building, you have to go 12 floors down yeah. and go outside. And that conversation really paid off because even the smokers themselves now have to debate, do I go down or do I go to the balcony to enjoy the view, enjoy the greenery, and also be able to get myself a salad for yeah. for life. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fun thing. It's a, it's a nice thing. But, you know, the wonderful thing about a project like that is that it just raises everybody's awareness because sometimes it's just a matter of thinking, yes, I could do that. Um, so, exactly, you yeah. know, it, you, so you're walking the talk, putting your money where, where your mouth is. Yes. Well, Elba, thank you. Yes. No, 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 you were going to say something? I was going to say, uh, one of the things about this exhibition that we're doing for the HM is that as KTM Partnership, we've been working in this space now for the last 13 years. And we've seen, um, you know, the first um, footprint that we put on the intent of KTM CBD, where we said we needed to risk the CBD. Crime, crime, 1999 was a big problem. In 2006, we saw um, a, a reinvestment in terms of properties in town, and the properties were thriving, but we realized that what is missing is the soul of Cape Town, which is the people of Cape Town. So we started saying, well, let's add people, let's add people. Right now, we're saying people first, because not only is it important to be able to have people who understand the city and are actually aligned and can see themselves in the city, which also causes another sense of resilience because once Cape Townians see the CBD of Cape Town as a socially cohesive space where they can all not only see themselves but can also connect to different race groups in Cape Town, it's then that we think we can be able to overturn the apartheid city. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, we then have a theatre where we can be able to talk to people about resilience and sustainability, etc. Opening up the debate. Thank you very much. Uh, it's Cape Town Partnership CEO Bolelwa Makalima Nguana. And uh, very best of luck with that exhibition. Thanks for joining us. That exhibition, once again, it's called People Make Places. It's on at number six Spin Street. And you've got just a week to go along and have a look. And maybe you've got uh, part of the debate that you'd like to share with it. Share and you get your information all there. You're listening to The Enviro Show. Stay with us. The Enviro Show. We're moving on to uh, fish, as we promised. The Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries recently announced a rather drastic cutting of criff or rock lobster annual quotas and the number of days in which they can be caught by more than half. 
So uh, and it seems that it's been estimated that stocks are currently at just 3% of historical level. So that's how badly they've been overfished. But the recreational fishing people are up in arms. And to explain exactly why, we have on the line Carrie Steele-Bow, uh, chairperson of the Recreational Fishing Services, to tell us all about it. Hi, Carrie. Hello, how are you? I'm well, I'm well, thank you. Um, you know, just looking at these statistics here, the fact that uh, rock lobster or criff, the stocks are at just 3% of what they used to be. I'm not sure how many years ago, but, but nonetheless, it indicates a big decline. But you're concerned that the, uh, annual, cat, the annual quota has been, has been cut so drastically. Why? First of all, we're the smallest sector. We get about between 4 and 8% of the total allowed catch. Of the, of the 2,160 tons that were allocated globally, that's now between offshore commercial, inshore commercial, and uh, the small-scale sector and recreational, we, we're getting 83 tons of that 2,160 tons. They, they don't mention that in the media. They tell us we're getting 26 days. <clears throat> Excuse me. The other, the other sectors, however, are getting six months to catch their quotas, which is equivalent to 180 days. Obviously, it's weather permitting, but the 26 days for us is also weather permitting. So they're taking the uh, allowance away from the smallest, the smallest sector, the people that have got the smallest cut of the pie, but we generate more income in the region than all of those sectors put together, mm-hmm. and we create more jobs, knock-on jobs. Um, I can tell you now... There's going to be anything up to 3,000 job losses in the northern and the western Cape in the next six months because of this this reduction in the crayfish season. Yeah, yeah. So um, in 2003, 2004, exactly the same thing happened. And you had little town, um, coastal towns like Port Nolliff, um, a petrol station, a owner of a petrol station had to lay off four of these petrol pump attendants and all that type of thing. It's a, it's a knock-on effect. So they, and then what they've done with the small-scale sector, they took the 100 tons that we had. We had 183 tons. They're giving us 83,5 tons. So they've taken that 100 tons and they've given it to the small-scale sector. The small-scale sector's quota actually went up. But they gave them extra 100 tons to cater for the 300 extra people that they brought into that sector, from 1,500 to 1,800. Mm. So, uh, am I hearing that you feel that you have been unfairly singled out? We, you see, the problem with the recreational sector is we, it's so diverse, and the public, it's a difficult to get the public to stand together because we don't make money out of it. It's a recreational activity. But the, the very activity that we do creates funds. You get a guy who'll go buy a boat. I mean, I got a phone call from a guy today. He's got a, Boat in Khan's buy that's 600,000 rand. Yeah. And he says, what must I do with the boat now? Yeah. And you've got this, okay, it's an it's elitist group, but what do we do? Yes. Uh, Carrie, we can we I, spend can, money yeah. um, and we create jobs yeah. when we come to the coast. No, no, I absolutely understand that. But I, I'm thinking yeah. maybe, you know, maybe the answer is in recreational fishing services. It does sound like a luxury item. And whilst I appreciate what you're... It does sound like a luxury, but it's... Whilst I appreciate what you're saying uh, about jobs and income... Whether we can, are can rich I, or I, poor can, or uh, um, we right, somewhere in the middle, we are South Africans and we're entitled yeah. to access to the resource. But... 
how can a department, I go to, the, I go to all the uh, West Coast Doctor scientific work group meetings, at least six of them. I never, ever see any people from management in fisheries in those work groups, except the last one where they come and argue with the scientists and bring other data there and come with two sets of data, and they're arguing with, with data that the scientists have collected from the research department. So there's a big tug-of-war within that department already. So it's, it's, it's basically a political decision, and it's, um, and it's a decision that doesn't make sense at all. You've got a, 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 a huge um, fleet of, of boats that go out and cap, cap these these crayfish offshore. Um, can, the, can, I, area can I just, area, can, super can, area Carrie, seven, can, which I, is can I just interrupt? Because what I really want to suggest is that whilst you're talking about bringing in jobs and income, isn't the real problem here the stocks of the CRIF? I mean, that 3% of, of historical levels. So, you know, you call it a political decision. I suppose the decision that we really want to see is whether or not it's a sustainable decision. Do you do you feel something does need to be done about the stocks yes, before it look, disappears I'm altogether? all for if they want to close down the, 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 the rock lobster fishery, they can do that. But do it with everybody. Don't give it to um, the people that are poaching. They've showed an overcatch of 30 tons as it is in, in data, and there's um, rumours are rife that these people... Once they catch their quota, uh, they weigh their quota in at the scales, and once they've uh, reached their quota at the scales, they go and they catch illegal lobster, and they start selling that at a, at a, a lower price. And that I've seen with my own eyes in Patronosta, and I've watched them. I watched them for a long time. Um, yeah, well, maybe, so, uh, maybe this, maybe yeah. there's, a, uh, there's a super area seven. It's the area from well, Malpos to, to pass Azefontein. That's the West Coast. That coast, I've been diving there since I was seven years old. And there's always been crayfish there around Dustin Island along the coast. Now the boats have depleted that area. It's become a... Um, they, no, there's no fishing allowed there except for 80 tons for research. Yes. And they're saying it's because of low um, oxygen events and the movement of crayfish, but it's not. It's overfishing. They were those traps that catch tons and tons of fish how do they expect it to last if they do that? Maybe the that's recreational what, yeah. fishermen do not have an impact, that type of impact. We never ever catch our TAC. We've got the smallest TAC. It's like four. At the moment, with 83%, it's like 3% of of the global TAC. Yeah. Carrie, going to leave it at that, but I, I guess the bottom line there, or at least the, the last word there, is the word overfishing, and that's what this is all about. But that is overfishing. Thank you, and, thank they, you. and, and maybe the, uh, maybe the, the argument that, that you're... Maybe the argument that you're presenting perhaps will shine some light on the situation that, you know, the stocks are are really threatened. But thank you very much for, for joining us. I'm going to give out your website if anybody would like to know more. Thank you. Carrie Steele-Bow, he is chair of the Recreational Fishing Services, www.recreationalfishingservices.co.za. And I, as I say, I think... For, um, for my money, it really sees the issue of overfishing that seems to be the real problem and perhaps sustainable decisions need to be to be made. But we thought it was worth hearing that just to shine a little bit of light on the problem as it really is. Well, someone who may or may not have thoughts on uh, CRIF, on Rock Lobster, because it's, it's not really on his menu or even his agenda. But he's Greg Stubbs and he's an aquaculturist. He's the founder of the Three Stream Fish Farm and he's also...
also co-creator of the Salmon Bar in Franschhoek. And uh, the Salmon Bar, they recently secured themselves MSC certification, Marine Stewardship uh, Council certification, making them one of only two restaurants in the country to have such a thing. Well, we've got Greg on the line to uh, tell us a little bit about it. Hi, Greg. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Excellent and really nice yeah. to be able to talk to you because we had you lined up a little while ago and I think you had a bit of a, a bad time, so it's nice to be able to get you at last. Um, Greg, I'm not sure if you well if you were able to hear what Carrie was saying there, but what's your take? I, I know Rock Lobster Creof is not really uh, on your agenda, but what's your take on those uh, fishing quotas? Um, it's it's interesting that it's been raised with me because um, my my great grandfather and my grandfather we were very much involved in the early fisheries of of species like the ro- the rock lobster. Mm. And I think he, he opened up the export of, of crayfish to or lobster to um, America. Um, but yes, you know, it's, a, it's been a long journey from, from uh, catching wild fish through to what we do today, which is aquaculture. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, the word exploitation, you use, one hears it often in terms of fishery catches and that one exploits a resource, which I think is is the wrong word to use. One shouldn't exploit a resource, one should utilize a resource. Yeah. You know, in fishery science, they talk about exploitation, which immediately makes you think, well, you know, is that the right thing to be doing? Well, yes, uh, I mean, you talk about your grandfather and your great-grandfather, and we're going back a, a, a moon or two here, but yeah. in those days... The word exploitation probably wasn't even considered because simply, I suppose, there was an abundance, so nobody thought about it then. Exactly. The the abundance of a species like like the, the um, South African rock, rock lobster was such that there um, are, are, are no stories of, of them using using the fish for bait. And in the Second World War, of canning it for the for the troops in the war, you know. And today we have the sad situation where we, as as recreational fishermen, can't can't go and die for them, which mm. is very, very sad. And and it's due to to the our forefathers not uh, sort of recognizing that that one couldn't continue harvesting from the sea. Um, similarly to the early hunters, you know, that we, we were hunter gatherers and we today are still just hunter gatherers of the sea, which is wrong. We can't do that. Yeah. We, we need to be extremely careful of how we do these things. Just bringing it up but to sort of closer to sort of modern times, uh, we spoke actually for, to um, Michael from the Marine Stewardship Council just a little while ago on the show. And there was a turning point, I think it was around about the, uh, it, it may have been around the 70s or 80s, I think it was the Grand Banks issue when suddenly, uh, you know, whole uh, areas of fish stocks were just collapsing left, right and centre. But I think there was a point in which you decided to start farming fish, which was one of the first, you were one of the first fish farmers in the country to do so. It was at a time when fish stocks were quite plentiful. Why did you, why did you decide to go that route? Um, yeah, in, in the early, early 80s, late, late 70s, early 80s, I was a boarding school in Cape Town and, and a couple of us would sit around and instead of doing prep homework we sort of think well what are we going to do one day and I, I was really passionate about the fact that one couldn't continue just um, harvesting the resources from the sea and 
it was a very novel concept in this country, but of course by then it was it was established overseas. There was um, the, the early starting of trout and salmon farming. Um, yeah, and I went on to to study agriculture and then wanted to study aquaculture and uh, ended up um, doing a postgraduate in Scotland. And it really opened my eyes to what was possible. But coming back to South Africa at that stage, which was the late 80s, um, it was still the heyday of, of, of um, wild capture fisheries. Mm. So it was very difficult to, to get a buy-in from, from big firms and so on. Um, but how drastically things have changed, you know, today where aquaculture is almost supplying the same volume and value of, of uh, farmed and uh, fish species. This, yeah. What sort of quantity are you looking at? I'm thinking about aquaculture and I'm thinking about Franschhoek, which is, you know, one of those beautiful lyrical places with mountains and dams and rivers and things. In fact, you're called Three Streams uh, Fish Farm. Are you are, are you sort of growing your fish or producing your fish, uh, breeding your fish in controlled conditions, in tanks or in, in dams? How does it work? Yeah, Nancy, we, we're actually, um, we've got a holding company with actually with seven different companies in it. And we, we're doing everything from growing juvenile trout and salmon to, on, on the right far side of the whole value chain, um, the, something like the salmon bar that is selling directly to the public, etc. But we we generally farming with with rainbow trout, and we're experimenting with Atlantic salmon and um, uh, white stump nose, um, and we're also farming with trout up in the Katsi um, Reservoir in the Lesotho Highlands. Um, and added to that, we we work very specifically with. Um, responsibly farmed aquaculture products from all over the world, so salmon from Norway or Scotland, and um, then wild capture fish that we work with is all um, either MSC or fully traceable back to the boats that they're caught from. So that's really the philosophy that we follow. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to come back to the wild-caught fish because I was, I was boasting on your behalf that you were able to track the, the journey of a fish from ocean to plate. But just, just to stay with the aquaculture and the fish farming itself for a moment there, do you, do you endeavour to create a natural, uh, a natural environment for the fish? I mean, if so, what are the biggest problems? Do they, do they breed well in um, captivity, I suppose? Yeah, if you take a species like like uh, trout or salmon, um, they they are very adaptable to to farming in a natural environment. Oh, in a, in a captive environment, um, and if you take a, a indigenous species like we're working now with white stumpers in Saldana Bay, we believe that that's a species we can work with. It's indigenous. It's um, hardy. It, it's reasonably easy to spawn, etc. Um, and we've been involved with some companies that have done the same with Cabalio now. We caught wild capture fish off the breeder of a mouth and over a period of time acclimated them, got them to spawn, etc. And recently they've been, the product's been launched in Woolworths. Um, so, you know, it is, a fut- it, it is the future. Um, if if Cabalio, for instance, are 2% of their, wild, of their original stock levels, um, how, do we, how do we get that species back? To, to a level where it, it is, it's at a level that uh, consumer demand can be met with, with the fish. It can't come from the wild resource. We know that. So 
you know, we have to we have to start farming it in a responsible manner, not in an irresponsible yeah. manner. Yeah. So it's in ways that um, doesn't have an impact on the environment. You're looking after the biosecurity. You're looking after the um, biodiversity of, of the species, etc. I'm, I'm thinking presumably aquaculture is something that's going to, well, it's it's got to catch on all over the world. Otherwise, we, you know, fish is simply going to be off the menu for everybody. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the wild, wild caught fish and uh, farmed fish are almost at the sort of uh, 50-50. I mean, you know, the world is eating sort of 50-50 wild caught and uh, farmed. Is that right? That is correct. It's um, the capture fisheries worldwide has been fairly stagnant at somewhere around 95 to 98 million tons per annum, whereas um, aquaculture is growing at six, six, six point something percent per annum, and it has for the last couple of decades. It's the fastest growing food industry in the world, wow. um, it, it, and it stands to reason as as the world population is growing towards. They, they sort of postulate it's going to be between 9 and 12 or 11 billion. Um, so all future demand can only be met through aquaculture. But I think it's very important to, to, to consider that um, aquaculture is not going to be the silver bullet. You know, we've still got to look after our, our wild resources very, very carefully um, through, through programs like the MSC um, that regulate the industry. Well, not regulate, but but that um, place place a sort of eco label on on resources that are looked after properly. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. I, think, I think eco labeling is uh, that's something that also came up when we were talking to the MSC, and I think that mm. it's important that everybody knows that what they're eating is okay to be eating, and mm. that's where the salmon bar comes in. And I think you've just got yourself an MSC uh, label, which is which is good, which means that. If you go and eat something there, it, a piece of fish, you could actually come along and say, okay, this was caught in X, X situation and has been you know, a process in X situation. So all the way along, we know exactly where that fish has come from. How do you how do, you do that? Well, it, it starts with um, procuring the fish from a resource that um, is accredited, that has been... Um, audited by an independent third party, so not by the MSC itself, um, and to, for it to, to achieve that uh, eco-label, it, it has to um, show that it is sustainable, that the fishery is um, not under threat, etc. Um, and then the total f- sort of traceability of that product from the f- actual boat through to the processor, packing house, import a trade or whatever through to us um, and onto your plate. Um, we can show that traceability through all that paperwork, etc. Um, and, and I think that's very important for a customer to know. I mean, we've always sort of used the word that as, as, a, as a consumer, we think it's important you know the journey that your food has traveled. Um, and I think it's becoming more and more relevant today, especially with uh, concerns around things like antibiotic use, um, hormones, GM foods, etc. Yeah, so it's how it's been caught and where it's been caught. I mean, talking of the journey, just lastly, I think a lot of fish have very long journeys. I think that they are <laughs> they come from very far afield, um, go to one country, get processed, go to another country. So there's a lot of flying around of fish. That's very true. It's very true. Um, 
you know, if you take our trout farming, for instance, we don't have a big enough industry in this country. It's less than a thousand tons a year. If you take um, trout production worldwide, it's probably somewhere around 600,000 plus tons. If you take salmon farming worldwide, it's close to 2 million tons. Uh, so we are a tiny, tiny niche industry, you know, but if we, when we start our whole process, we bring in a little polystyrene box of eggs from America and it's, it weighs 15 kilograms. And 12 months later, that 15 kilograms has been translated into 12 to 16 months later, that's been translated into maybe 100, 150 tons of fish. So, you know, it's very efficient that. Yeah. Um, but yes, you're quite right. I mean, you know, salmon can go from Canada to China and be reprocessed and then go back to Europe, you know. Um, it's, yeah, it it's, sounds like it needs a passport. It's MSC South African Hake, or, um, which is, you know, caught off our coastline and is, is a wonderful product, um, which is fully traceable, etc. or our locally farmed trout, it's, those are good choices. You know? <laughs> those are good choices. And if it's yeah. choice that you're after and if you want it's a choice fish and you know where it's been and you know yeah. that it's uh, been ethically produced, look for the MSC label. Greg, thank you so much. It's been yeah. a pleasure to chat. And I think uh, salmonbar.co.za is the is the restaurant. Um, but the free Three streams. What's your it's, website there? Yeah, it's very easy. It's uh, www.threestreamsoneword.co.za and three spell three, not the number three. Yeah, threestreams.co.za. Yeah. Fabulous. Super. Thank you very much. Sure, was back again. Greg Stubbs, and if you would like to know a little bit more about sustainable fish, and isn't that interesting that uh, aquaculture is one of the fastest growing businesses in the world, so maybe that's the way to go if that's what you're thinking. Uh, www.threestreams.co.za or check, uh, and if you're a fish lover, Salmon Bar, definitely the place to go and have yourself a yummy meal. Salmonbar.co.za The Enviro Show well, next up here on the Enviro Show, Women in Energy. Dr. Tambakazi Mali sits at ministerial level regarding women in energy, and she has a position at SENEDI, which stands for South African National Energy Development Institute, which gives her a bit of an insight into the alternative energy sector right here in South Africa. And what does it mean? What does it mean to us in the cities? What does it mean to us in the rural areas? Well, we have Dr. Dr. Marley on the line to give us an idea of what it actually means to us all. Dr. Marley, nice to have you with us. Uh, good evening. Thank you. You are, um, you're with Sinedi. You're, what's your actual role there? What is it that you are focused on personally? Okay, my, uh, my particular role in Sinedi is to head up the renewable energy portfolio which is basically looking after projects which are the renewable energy that you looked after is solar, wind, um, biomass, mm -hmm. and marine energy. So we're looking into technologies which can be promoted, into, which can harness all those uh, resources into cleaner energy. Solar, wind, biomass, marine energy. Can you just explain marine energy? Marine, um, I know it's kind of like it's, it's kind of like a, a new frontier type of um, technology. South Africa is endowed with a lot of waves, so you take the wave, the energy that comes from the wave can be harnessed, and then it produces to produce electricity. Oh. 
Okay. Are we? How are we doing on that score here in South Africa? Oh no, we're not doing great, but we are. I mean, worldwide, it's still a technology that's still maybe uh, a couple of years to come to to be commercial. So in South Africa, we we're just doing a lot of uh, resource mapping, just to know what kind of wave energy we have, how much potential it, it potential energy can produce. So we're just mapping the waves, and we also have one of the most um, uh, the Agalas current can also be harnessed. The current can also be harnessed to give um, electricity. So marine energy is is an area that we need to do a little bit more about. Just whilst we're talking about marine things, I just uh, a mention to the listener who just called in who wants to know about the conditions that farmed fish live in when we're talking about marine issues. Do they have enough space to move around and, and follow their instincts? I think that's a question that we might actually throw back to Greg Stubbs in, himself. I'm going to... Uh, uh, if Greg's still listening, Greg, we're, we're expecting an answer from you. Um, but what we'll do is perhaps pop in an email and we'll try and get an answer for you. Thanks very much to the listener who asked that question. So in terms of marine energy, there's a big way to go. Uh, in terms of the others, solar, wind, biomass, where is South Africa doing really well? Oh, South Africa is actually doing very well when it comes to solar energy and wind energy. I'm not sure if you know about the program that the South African government has undertaken to actually get um, renewable energy onto the South African energy mix. And there have been three bidding rounds. People, I mean, companies bid for projects. I think so far, I mean, last week, 17 new projects were, were announced. All these projects were mostly wind and solar. So South Africa is doing very well in that. I mean, it has actually been said South Africa is one of the fastest growing renewable energy markets right now. Is it? Is it the? I mean, well, you know, our hearts tell us it's the way to go. Is it financially the way to go? I mean, I suppose because it, to a large extent it's sort of untapped ter territory, or perhaps you know it hasn't been tapped long enough for everybody to know um, how successful it really is. Is it not a very? Is it not very costly? Certainly in terms of solar and wind. Well, you have to look at the way, I mean, we are the biggest um, polluter, basically, with the 12 carbon polluter in the world. So we need to mitigate our carbon footprint. So because uh, the higher, the, if, you, if you don't do that, your, your, your carbon footprint and your license to operate generally are tied. So, I mean, if you are, if, if you are seen as a, as a clean country, then you People are free then to trade with you, and it might come at a cost. But I think in the long run, it, it will assist South Africa as an economy as an economy to grow, because these I mean these these plants and all these plants that are coming, they're going to create jobs. There'll be jobs when they're constructed, and there'll be jobs. I mean, of course, the jobs will get less when they are operating, but most jobs are, are going to be during construction. Is, it, is there sufficient awareness of these? I mean, you know, I suppose everything points towards jobs one way or another here in South Africa because we have such huge unemployment. But, but is there enough awareness? Um, people are a little bit sort of uh, shy about things that have not been proven to be sort of very, very, very successful. Yeah. Are, we, are we putting out enough information about them? Maybe not because for, for the person on the street, this could sound like a far-fetched thing. But I think because the 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 the, the most um, 
focus has been on huge projects which, are, which feed into the transmission lines that you already have. I think if maybe we were to look at smaller projects that are mostly community-based or rather like in, 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 in areas where people can actually see these projects, because these projects, these solar projects, are not necessarily in urban areas. They are out in, in, in open spaces, out mostly in northern, the Northern Cape, not in areas where people can actually see. And so they are not exactly visible to, to, the, to, to the person on the street. So, but I think there's a lot of awareness that needs to be brought around, around renewable energy and the benefits that it brings to the, to, to the country and to communities as a whole. There's a lot of awareness around or there's a lot of concern around um, nuclear stations and nuclear power stations that are being built. There's a lot of uh, huge amount of concern around fracking and shale gas. We're going to be talking a little bit about that in just a minute. But, but, you know, relative to those two areas, how much money is really going into alternative energy? Is it, you know, Sanedi, I know that you're doing your very best, but are you a poor relation in terms of money spent? Well, it is definitely because nuclear. I mean, there's you see, they have huge budgets. Yes. When you think about nuclear, that's a, that's like huge budget spent, and we 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 don't have enough. But I mean, with the little that we have, we try our best so that we can actually promote these technologies and get them out into the open, and people can see the benefits. But it's not it's not exactly. It's not apples to apples. We're not comparing apples with yeah. apples, yeah. Yeah, no, we're comparing tiny peas with great big fat <laughs> apples. If I could just ask you, though, um, Dr. Mali, I know that you are, you're involved in women in energy. Do we see that women, you know, are we, are we thinking, oh, shame, the alternative, uh, alternative energies, let's get the women involved? Is it, you know, why women in particular? Because I think it's just, I think it's just the nature of things like, in the sciences, usually, there are not too many women. And so you, you kind of, like, need to, I mean, it's just just the way things are in the engineering. I mean, you always complain there are not enough skills. If, and if they're not in, so there will be less women, naturally. It's just the way things are. But we try to promote and get more women into this world because it, it, it's not about, you don't go to, you're not going to be out lifting anything. You can do a lot of other things other than being out there doing manual physical work. Well, there we go. I think if anybody would like to know uh, a little bit more, I mean, if particularly if you're a woman, but if anybody is interested in um, finding out a little bit more about the alternative energies, particularly marine energy, uh, can they find it on your website? Yeah, we do have a website. It, it, uh, it, it's in our Sanid website, but there's a particular area we never... It's called RECORD, which is our Renewable Energy uh, Centre of Re, uh, Research and Development. So on our website, we just list the things that we do in the different technologies. And, of course, we have a link. We work a lot with, the, with, with other stakeholders, so we have links to their website and the work that we're doing with them. Okay, well, let me give out your website. And just for the record, as it were, you can find out a little bit more about uh, alternative energies. And I think it's something that definitely needs a little bit more energy put into it because it's uh, definitely got to be the way to go. Dr. Marley, Dr. Tembakazi, Marley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Good you. Night. Good night. Good Thanks night. A lot. Well, if you would like to find out a little bit more, it's uh, senedi.org.za. That's S-A-N-E-D-I.org.za. www.senedi.org.za. And don't forget, anything you've missed, you can contact us. We're at enviro at 
That's afm.co.za. And quick off the mark, we actually have uh, got a little bit of input from Greg about the conditions that fish are farmed in. And apparently, according to Greg, about, about 20 years ago, there was a very bad press about overstocking and hormones and the, the way in which uh, aquaculture was being done was not necessarily ethical at all, nor even very healthy. But nowadays, um, 90% of water and 10% of fish in breeding space and good environmental practices means that we don't really have those issues anymore. Certainly, according to Greg Stubbs, so that you know, if you get one of his products, you're absolutely safe and you can eat those fish with uh, a very clear conscience. Well, you're listening to the Enviro Show, and uh, last but certainly not least, I'm sure you would have heard that recently here in Cape Town, the silver-headed group known as the Elders gathered, and they discussed many, many things. But amongst the topics that they discussed was what they describe as the biggest threat facing the planet, which, needless to say, was climate change. And uh, also, needless to say, the issue of shale gas and fracking came up. And uh, Jimmy Carter is quoted as having said that if it's a choice between coal and oil or shale gas, go with shale gas. So what does that uh, what does that tell us about fracking? And as you know, uh, or possibly you've read, anti-fracking protesters marched through the centre of uh, Cape Town just recently to Shell South Africa offices to hand over a letter saying that the global oil company was not welcome in the Karoo. Well, it looks like fracking and shale gas is uh, not about to lie down anytime soon. To give us certainly his input, we have on the line Jonathan Deal. He's uh, head of the Treasure the Karoo Action Group. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Nancy. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, it's a pleasure. It's, it's only been a matter of time. The thing about fracking is that there are so many arguments uh, for and against. And along came the elders, uh, and, you know, we're, we're all sort of expecting them to throw up their hands in horror. They seem to be quite, perhaps not pro-fracking, but certainly pro-shale gas. Absolutely, and I think that you, you made an interesting point when you mentioned that Jimmy Carter said, you know, if it's, we, uh, if it's a choice, we'll go for shale gas because it's cleaner. And there is a, there is a very cleverly marketed perception by the, the oil and gas industry that it is cleaner. Certainly, we're all aware that if you use a gas cylinder to heat a litre of water or you make a coal fire to do the same thing, you're going to make a lot more mess with the coal. But what is missing from that argument is the science of the the many emissions that are not counted in terms of the extraction, the mining, the transporting of the gas, the fugitive methane that escapes. And methane <clears throat> can be a far more potent gas than CO2. It can be up to 70 times more potent in a 20-year time frame than CO2. So, And although we have seen carbon emissions go down in America, but one thing that we all need to understand is that we're part of a global community. And if America is not doing coal, they're exporting the coal, and the coal is getting burned somewhere else. And the pollution doesn't recognize global boundaries, which means that essentially we sit with the same problem anyway, no matter where the coal is being burned. The thing about shale gas is, is there no other way of accessing it other than through fracking? I don't believe that that there is. I must point out that I'm a layman, although I have led this campaign and studied this very carefully for three years, and I do so on a daily basis. At this stage, there is no other way other than the technology that they've got. They may be able to introduce things like using uh, nitrogen foam or uh, liquid petroleum gas itself to frack underground, but that brings its own problems with it, and you still end up with, with enormous risk uh, to people and to the biodiversity when, in fact, um, we have 
natural gas that we can buy on the spot market offshore as soon as ESCOM is ready to use it. There are many sources of offshore gas around the coast of southern Africa, some ready to go within two or three years. And we're talking foreseeably of the production process that would only get using shale gas in this country by about 2023, 2024, by which time we need to be far down the road in terms of renewables in any event. Yeah, well, we've just been talking about renewables yeah. and we just need a whole lot more money to get poured into those yeah. industries, really. But one of the things that we tend to do here in South Africa, we, we look abroad, we look overseas to see who's doing what. And one of the things that you have been quoted as, as having said, that the proof of the unsustainability of fracking is that, that Shell's South African's parent, Royal Dutch Shell, was actually trying to sell its US shale gas assets. They're trying. I've just finished, completed a PowerPoint presentation this evening that I'm presenting in KZN tomorrow, and one of the slides mentions that BHP, Billiton, BP, and Shell in the United States, between the three of them, took $7 billion write-down in their Shell gas assets in 2012 and 2013. And Shell are trying to desperately to divest from their Shell gas assets in Colorado. Texas. So it's it's not... Um, everything that is panned out to be. And then people will say, well, why, if the economics are not so good, why are the companies doing this? It's well, Any global oil and gas company thrives and grows on its share price. And investors stop buying shares if they perceive that a company is not opening up new exploration, getting new reserves and getting new fields. And I firmly believe that this is one of the things that we're seeing here. I cannot find any other reason why we more, more than 211 bans, moratoria, and restrictions on shale gas mining around the world in the present circumstances. Um, yours, your, the Treasure the Karoo Action Group, you have quite a strong voice, but do, is, your, is your voice getting sufficiently heard? I mean, is, are there enough people um, really listening to and really <clears throat> understanding what it's all about? Uh, it's, it's been very difficult. It's an exercise to try and educate the public when you are um, competing with somebody the size of Royal Dutch Shell and their associates in the oil and gas industry. And it really shouldn't actually be our job. But we're, we're getting through more and more, but we're not alone. There are many organizations that do excellent work. The Center for Environmental Rights does good work in terms of informing people from a legal viewpoint, um, Mr. Johan Rupert has briefed an attorney in Krafrenet who's put together a very competent team. So, you know, we're not standing alone in our opposition to this. Yeah. Just lastly, very briefly, um, is it because you're wanting to treasure the Karoo or is it because you're wanting to stop fracking? I mean, do you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, I'm very pleased you asked that question. My absolute and sole focus which is driven by my complete belief that fracking is the wrong thing for South Africa, is actually on the future generations of South Africans and Africans. This is not about preserving some elite lifestyle in the Karoo. If one looks at the maps in the country, Nancy, where, where the new exploration areas have already been applied for, our entire country is dotted with this. This is not something just for the Karoo farmer anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that we should flesh it out more on your show. 
if we get an opportunity. In, indeed, I think we should. I think we need to have all sides of the of the argument here. But yes. I think what we all need to do is inform ourselves better. So I'm going to refer people to your website where they can start there at least. No, thank you. Very best of luck. Sure, we'll speak again. Take care. Enjoy your evening. Thank Bye-bye. you. Jonathan Deal, he's the head of the Treasure the Karoo Action Group. And if you would like to find out more and find out a little bit for yourself, treasurethekaroo.co.za is the website, treasurethekaroo.co.za. And if you want to find us here at the Enviro Show, we're at enviro at safm.co.za or find us on Facebook. It's the Enviro Show on SAFM. Thanks very much, team, the Enviro Show team, Garnet and Quinica and Kim Winter. And I'm Nancy Richards, and I'll be back on Sunday with the uh, SAFM literature. But right now, I've done it again. I've stolen yet another minute from Stephen Kirker, but who is tutting in the background. I'm so sorry, Stephen. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. It's very important stuff you're dealing with. And interesting to hear how um, those who have pioneered or at least try to get into this uh, maybe trying to wash their hands of it. The Enviro Show next week, Thursday. Do join Nancy then.